Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA monthly livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. And welcome to our July 25th livestream for Science and Futures with Isaac Arthur, I'm your aforementioned host, Isaac Arthur, and we'll be joined today by my co-host, my lovely wife Sarah Fowler Arthur, who will be asking us questions, and she has her eyeglasses on today, or sunglasses on today because she got stuck on the face by a bee, which happened to be last week, I am sunborn. So we're just getting that out of the way as we get questions in for the uh, audience to be asked, and we will go ahead and start off with one from last month. Yes, our first question is from ATWWA, and thank you for the super chat. Their question is, are we even getting close to understanding gravity and dark matter? Um, it depends on what you mean by getting close to it. These days we tend to know what the effects mostly are of dark matter and dark energy, but um, when I was going to school there was still a lot of debate about what dark matter was, though it hasn't really changed that much, we've narrowed it down a bit more. But it was pretty much accepted and has been probably for a couple decades before that where it was just taken as given. Dark energy that was just getting discovered. We were just starting to figure that out. And um, 20 years later, mostly what we made is progress theoretical and a little bit more conforming stuff to say that's happening. We've had a lot of uh, supernovas that are mostly we were counting, but we can only really refine our data for a lot of that by counting supernovas and we can't rush those. Um, at the same time, because that's how we measure the real distances, at the same time we really are no closer to be able to say what dark energy really is other than maybe the space or the energy of space-time. And we also had a super chat from France Cadet, and thank you for that donation, and he says, what is the right way to imagine the Big Bang? Um, you know, one of the popular examples they like to do is, is take a big bread thing of uh, dough and raisins in it and uh, you cook it and it expands. I've never entirely liked that, but um, the basic notion of being Big Bang is don't think of it as a big explosion. Think of it as a very hot gas that was inside a very tiny vessel and the vessel itself has expanded so the gas has had a chance to kind of expand and cool around. Um, that's the basic notion that's going on there, but the expansion, that vessel, that is what your dark energy fundamentally is, is that energy of space-time. Uh, it, it, as, as time holds out, space expands, and that's the energy of it, we believe, loosely. Um, and Smiley Face, Smiley Face says, do you think the Expanse universe is more likely to be what humanity will look like in the future? Uh, the Expanse, uh, for everyone who does not know what that show is, I still haven't watched the last season that came out, but uh, I read the first few books and I've seen the first few seasons, and they are more or less the same, but... What we know about that setup, usually what people mean by that is, do you think that's how it's going to roll out with Earth having this overpopulated kind of mess on it and Mars being a rebel colony that's its own very powerful government and then the asteroid mining belts are very you know, poor and dilapidated and oppressed and full of terrorists and pirates? And the answer is no. Um, I don't doubt people in the future will say, 
help, help, I'm oppressed. Uh, but at the same time, Mars is never going to be the other big power. There's not 40k or the Expanse. That's more likely to be the moon or something like that. It's going to be anybody at all. But the, the big other powers are still going to be on Earth. Mars is never going to be a singular powerhouse that I would guess. There's no reason for it to be. You know, maybe Venus and Jupiter and all the others will be big players in the game. But Earth is going to be your great big power, and everybody else is going to be farther down that list for eons to come. Well, at least thousands of years. Here's one from today with a name as long as the question. Technological singularity with Anmal Gupta with the galactic dom domination. Wants to know. The Galactic Laboratory will be the last episode of the Galactic Domination series. Will the Galactic Laboratory be the last episode of the Galactic Domination okay. series? Um, it's the last one that's actually written at the moment. Whenever I do a new series, and actually call it a series, I always have at least three videos in mind before I declare it to be a series. Uh, kind of like we did with the weaponizing, colonizing, and um, I can't remember what the other episode was. We've never done black hole ships, but colonizing black holes and weaponizing black holes, and that's all we've done in that series, so it's just a trilogy. But until I have three topics in mind, I won't actually declare something a series. Usually before the first one comes out, I'll have written the first three episodes too. I haven't decided what episode four will be, or when it will come out. We have a list of topics that Jerry Gurren and I had come up when he suggested the series to me, uh, kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing while we were editing. I can't remember what the other video was at the time, but uh, he gave me a whole list of potential topics that he thought of. I've had a few more I came up with, and those three, though, are the ones that we kind of start off with. Well, um, uh, the I think Empire of Torna was the one that I came up with originally, and then Strip Mine of Galaxy and Galactic Laboratory, both his ideas. Um, but those are written, and uh, the video for Galactic Laboratory is on my computer waiting to be released next week. <laughs> so that's the last one that's actually written and planned at this time, though. Kellen Wong says, is there any plausible way besides fictional physics, virtual worlds, and boarding raids that would force us to go back to fighting at closer ranges, both in planets and in space? Sure. We kicked around a few scenarios for, you know, things that would actually allow melee combat, for instance, in our Force Fields episode way back. Uh, I'd reference that one to you for some idea. But, you know, people say, well, in the future, you're never going to have any reason to do any of that close-range stuff. And so that's what they said 100 years ago. Um, you know, when we were getting to the point where artillery and airplanes were just so dominating the battlefield, you couldn't imagine why you'd have anyone rushing forward with guns in the future, uh, let alone up close and personal. Yet we still do that. The majority of combat these days takes place at, you know, a very short range. Uh, that would just mean like police, occupational forces in war zones, etc. Um, high intensity warfare is all at a distance of, you know, very high energies of war. Uh, that's your bombers, your artillery, etc. But there's so many other things in the future that could kind of keep it close range, but the biggest one is, are you willing to just blow the heck out of stuff? And if the answer is no, if you don't want to level that city or blow up that space station, then you're going to have to get boots on the ground, even if they're robot boots. And so then how you do that is mostly going to depend on the available technology, see the Force episode or the uh, Planetary Assaults episode for a little discussion of that. Exoplanet2020 says, how many people could live in an O'Neill cylinder before... Too much waste heat makes it uninhabitable. Mm, depends entirely on how big the uh, the O'Neill cylinder is. Like if it's all the way upgrade to a McKendry cylinder. Usually on the show, when I say O'Neill cylinder, I am thinking of the big version, not the McKendry, but the biggest of the ones that he discussed, which is uh, 32 kilometers or 20, uh, 20 miles long and uh, uh, eight miles in diameter. I don't know how what that is in kilometers. But uh, five, it'd be five. No, maybe 
like 12 in it. Either that, I'm getting that one backwards. Whichever the case, that's like the size of a county, you know? And if you want to double layer that, then you need to cut your lighting down if you want to have two stacked layers on there, because otherwise you're going to heat up. You know, it's, it's going to be perpetually new. Uh, inside those, if you have that much heat coming on all the time, you know, if you're cycling days and so forth, it's going to heat up. If you want to be Earth-like, uh, then you can only have one layer before you have to start introducing cooling systems. Um, but there's no actual limit on how many people you can put in one. A candy soda could have billions, and that just depends on your cooling technology and how active you want to go with that. Personally, I don't think you'd really want to do too many layers. Probably at most a dozen, so. Circling back to uh, traveling through outer space, Jockham Heitman says, do you have any interesting thoughts on the billionaire space race? I'm glad that's going on. Um, I mean, there really only are three of them involved in that, uh, Richard Branson, Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos. And um, there's, you know, there are countries that are still obsessed with this too. It's not like it's just those three folks. They are both, they are all three of them, folks who are very good at, uh, I don't want to say the kind of Thomas Edison and Tesla approach of being successful with their technology as inventors or as promoters of invention, but also being very good at talking to the public about it and building up enthusiasm for it. So I think that that's, that skill is just happens to kind of coincide with them being billionaires to some degree. But um, I don't think it was a billionaire space race. I don't know if people are trying to characterize it that way. I don't think that's a good idea to kind of do that because it's going to make it seem like Bezos versus Musk versus Branson, and that is, you know, this is not even SpaceX forces, Blue Origins, etc. This is us trying to get out there. This is a team effort, you know. And uh, the space race had its advantages back in the day, but right now we should be thinking this is a relay race of a lot of people working together to get it done, not a competitive competition to see any other than who gets the biggest trophy, as it were, while everybody gets to celebrate at the end. A relay race is an interesting thought. Mm -hmm. The Canadian wants to know how massive something needs to be in order to hold things on its surface. Um, that is kind of tricky. We discussed that a little bit in the micro black hole, no, sorry, planetary, in colonizing black holes and in mega Earths, we discussed how you calculate that a little bit better for the miniaturized ones. Um, there is no absolute maximum, but your key thing is the escape velocity at the surface right, needs to be a, a order of magnitude higher than whatever the surface temperature's root mean square speed is, or you'll be gassy out constantly. And the escape velocity is actually less than the root mean square speed of all those warm air particles moving around than any puncture or all the air is just gone instantly. But um, how you actually get that escape velocity up to that level, you can get pretty condensed. You could also, you know, just put a glass shield around the plant to keep it in there and go into a relatively low microgravity setup too. So um, there is no minimum size for what you could actually hold things down with gravity at um, that unless you want to get really into where the gravitational cutoff is for like, I need to have at least 0.01% gravity or something like that. But uh, pretty small. You can make a micro plant around a black hole, an artificial black hole obviously, that is uh, in the O'Neill cylinder class or smaller, you know, to that point of being maybe even like a Kaplano or Gateway space station level of internal space, only a sphere. The K2 Despot says, hey Isaac, would you ever consider doing a video talking about the physics and possible technological applications of topolo topolo topological defect phenomena and 
magnetic monopoles and cosmic strings. Okay. Um, I am actually not a big uh, uh, fan of magnetic monopoles. I know that a lot of people feel they're very critical to, no, I say the standard model, but to a lot of the cosmological models, and there's a good case for it. But I, I really tend to feel like if you can't find it in nature, and I know someone's going to point out the top and bottom quark weren't found in nature, um, but if you can't find them, create them, etc., if you can't figure out what the stats are going to be on them, it, it, it starts to get really dubious if you should take it as a given that they are there. Cosmic strings, which are kind of like a, I mean, probably the best analogy would be a one-dimensional black hole instead of point like it's a long line. Those, I can't really see a case for either. I'm not sure why they wouldn't collapse, you know. Um, but it might be fun to do an episode on them at some point. That means it's solid enough basic theory. So, thank you, Winton Ashley, for your super chat. And he wants to know if you think negative friction could be a thing. Hmm. Uh... I'm not sure what negative friction would be. Really, probably uh, the same thing as negative cookies. Yeah, I guess probably. <laughs> so, whenever you start talking about negative quantities, you have to start thinking about which particular quantity is going to negative. Like um, Terry Pratchett, author of Discord, had a, a great example of this in uh, what he called anti-crimes. He said, uh, you know, the, the the exact opposite quantity of something has to be a little bit different. So, uh, an anti-crime isn't uh, a, a truly kind and across-the-board benevolent act. It's when you still feel like a victim afterwards and someone's done something nice to you. So breaking and decorating, where you break into someone's house and redo their place. You've done a good deed by them, but they feel very violated by it, would be the opposite of breaking and entering. Uh, white mailing, which is when you th- threaten a mob store by uh, letting, you know, threatening him to inform everybody of his good deeds in secret. Um, thus ruining his reputation for being a hard guy. Um, negative mass. Uh, people say, well, what would negative mass do? Well, negative mass, you push on it, should actually push back, you know, should should push back against you as well. It doesn't go flying because you have negative momentum towards you. Um, and uh, so if you push it, it goes flying towards you. That doesn't really make sense, though, does it? Right? So it's um, negative friction. Friction slows you down. It's the effect of ramming into infinite millions of particles over and over and over again that's slowing you down. If you're running through a cloud of negative matter, presumably the exact opposite should happen. You should be getting sped up. Every collision, every random collision is somehow assisting you to move faster. Uh, on paper, that works. You, you, your slide on surface has an ice skater and you accelerate just by being there. In practice, that really doesn't make a lot of sense. So, maybe, but that should be the effect as you roll across, it would speed you up. Joe Flo says, where do you think manufacturing technologies are going in the near and mid-term future? Um... I don't think they're converging specifically so much as I think we're going to see two major areas I'd say that we'll probably see a split to. One is going to be that um, extreme standardization, banging out, highly automated, where it can just bang the same product out over and over and over again at highest quality really fast. Another is going to be the things pass, we need to be able to change, we need to retool fast, and will be the emphasis on how quickly can you retool your factory or your production line to produce a new widget uh, with excellent production quality and, and minimal time loss on teaching, education, all that around that, what lets you switch over from able to produce one day soda cans, the next day shampoo bottles? You know, just because there's something that's needed for this one new brand new shampoo bottle and they need a million of them within the next week. What lets you suddenly convert from being able to do uh, production of, um, uh, what well, to use COVID last year and the, the great toilet paper shortage will allow you to convert from being able to do production of paper uh, for a copier to toilet paper. What lets you be able to switch over to producing masks 
from those just real quick. And uh, that's probably going to be one of those big areas that goes forward. I know the customers say more robots and more 3D printing. And absolutely, yes, both of those things will feature in there. But always not so much the method, but what is the main goal. It's like uh, what uh, Henry Ford used to say. If you ask people what they want, they'll tell you they want a faster horse, not a car. Whether it's got more robots or 3D printing, what you're really looking forward is how do we produce these products quickly and quality with very little short notice? Or how do we produce this one object we all know we need abundantly quickly? Welcome back, Isaac Bordeaux, and he wants to know if you have read The Case for Space. By Rob Zubin. Uh, yes, um, he had The Case for Mars uh, before that. I'm having problems remembering specifically what was in The Case for Space, though, but if you've not read uh, Rob Zubin's book, I guess the one, The Case for Mars, is probably a little dated now, though it's still a good read. Another great book by him, uh, Merchants of Despair. Great book. Um, he's a great writer, and uh, uh, I would highly recommend almost any of his books to you, but uh, that's a good one, too. Your follower. It says, yes, that's the actual username, your follower. <laughs> what would be some similarities and differences between age of ocean exploration and age of space exploration? <sighs> Less pirates. I don't know. <laughs> space pirates might be yeah. a thing. Well, we had the Space Pirates episode a few years back, and I think uh, that was one of my favorite episodes to do. <laughs> um, space pirates. Um Biggest thing with the age of sail is once you're over the horizon, no one could see you, and you didn't know what was on the other side. In space, you're always going to know where you know before you get there what the destination looks like, and not in the oh hey we can see you know 20 miles away because we have a very high mast on this ship. You're never going to know on an ocean because of that whole what's coming up. In space, you're always going to know before you get there what you're looking at. You're just going to get to know it better and better as you approach. Now, there's not going to be some surprises, but when you talk about exploring that whole sense of wonder of being able to close over that one cliff or around that one bend and suddenly go, oh, a beautiful new vista, that's not space, unfortunately. But that's the big difference between the two, the horizons. Raven609 wants to know if you have any thoughts on speculative evolution. I'm afraid I don't know what the term means. Okay, um, then that would probably be a no. <laughs> RoboGuy says, do you think religious aliens are realistic or just a sci-fi trope? Um, I wouldn't see why you wouldn't expect it. I guess it kind of depends on, um, let's see again, if you're assuming that they like us in terms of that basic cognition concept, then you would expect them to have all the same traits that we had in terms of philosophy, right? They'd have differences, but that should be there, and that's just one example of that, so I would be very surprised if you did not see that trait. Thank you, Merv Johnson, for your super chat today. And he says, as a crowdfunded AI, how is your new studio or lair? It's a wonderful digital uh, universe that we have set up here. Now, I am loving it. I'm going to skip on trying to shift the cameras around at the moment because I, I got them lined up. Uh, Sindri, Alex Long, one of our producers, helped me do the lighting last time around. And there's actually a map I used just for those occasions. Uh, for two hours every month, I actually set up for a live video stream. The rest of the time it is... My big desk, uh, bookshelves, screens, and that's the way I like it. Quiet and He cool. wants to know if it has missile silos. It does. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but don't tell. <laughs> Bryce Hill, what planet in our solar system do you think is the worst to colonize or mine for resources? 
I guess it would kind of depend on what you mean by it. It, it depends so much on what resource you want to get and what your technology is. If you're talking like which one has the least resources, then it would be Pluto because Pluto doesn't have much resources. Although there are other dwarf Just planets. Just funny little less. dogs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jupiter's got the most resources, but is the hardest one to actually access in terms of the planet. Well, on the other hand, its moons are very readily available. Uh, the planet that's probably going to be the most boring is probably going to be Uranus, I think. Uh, that or Neptune. just depends on which one turns out to be slightly more valuable. C.R. Smith wants to know how your beard looks so good. <laughs> uh, well, I was going to say by carefully dipping hydrogen peroxide a day or two ago. So it's been a week of minor injuries around the house. Uh, I'd say I got stung by bees yesterday coming back from giving them water. We keep bees, by the way. Um, and uh, the, a few days before that, I had, uh, well, um, I had been chopping jalapenos, and I, I did, it was a very spicy one. They once well gone, and um, I went like that with my finger, and I had that washing off, and it just spread all over my face, just so much jalapeno oil, and I was dipping in, like, isopropyl alcohol and hydrogen peroxide to get it gone. I don't know if it was actually good for the beard. I might fall out next week. So, <laughs> and then, uh, well... One it of our adds a certain sponsors. glow, but it, it might not be the glow that your followers want yeah. to copy. That's the sunborn. <laughs> One of our longtime uh, sponsors, Raycon, the ones that make the earbuds, um, I loved using them when I was out mowing the lawn. I'm uh, riding lawnmower, and I can actually hear an audiobook while I'm playing them. I lost one of the earbuds. It's somewhere up front. And I'm not going to find that one, I'm sure. But, uh, so I got out a pair of headphones. and said, like, oh, this is even more noise isolating, so it's just very large earphones. And I forgot to put on a hat, because they can't fit a hat over the earbuds. So, four hours of mowing the back lawn later, I was utterly sunboarded in those. We were so happy to see the sunshine after a week of rain. At least a week. Good God, I thought I was going to have to build an arc. It was raining nonstop in Northeast Ohio for like two weeks. All right, back to actual questions. <laughs> that was an actual question. <laughs> was it? <laughs> yes. Um, another question comes from Claire Higgins. I'm a homeschooler. Can you give educational recommendations for my 12-year-old who loves all things science? We love your channel. Hmm. Um, oh, speaking of sponsors, Brilliant is great for science content. Um, actually, Sarah probably know better than me. Um, I, we were both homeschooled, by the way. I was from age 10, but she actually did that for her and her younger siblings. And it was on the State Board of Education for years. Um, any good suggestions? She's shaking her head no. <laughs> um, was it for science education specifically? Science for 12-year-olds. Science for 12-year-olds. Brilliant really is a good one for that. But a lot of the channels do active experiments. Cody's lab, he has a lot of ones you can just do hands-on. Uh, he comes by because he keeps bees, too. Um uh, right. If you can find a copy, Gerald Walker's old uh, book, The Flying Circles of Physics, is full of you know, high school, junior high level experiments that take up one page to explain them, and you can do like that, and uh, you know, usually on a budget of a couple bucks. DeWall, thank you for your super chat. Have you listened to videos or read web stories of humans, space orcs? Fairly amusing and possible that most life evolves on planets like Mars, or is that possible? He says he figured he'd ask because humor is good. Uh, actually, look at that one real quick. Have yeah, you I apologize. To I, uh, the question's over on the side there, but it's really hard to actually read them off myself. Or stories of humans or spacewalks. I feel like maybe something got lost on that one. All right, what's your best stab at it? Oh, okay, I think I got it. Okay, oh. in the 
in the, the there are a lot of science fiction series where they adapt you know fantasy races you know the orcs the elves etc space elves in 40k the orcs um migrate from planet to planet on asteroids or cloud things and all these spore based things they're not actually a normal life form they are fungus and uh there's often been the thought that maybe life spreads throughout the combos like a a spore or cause you know or fungus on the panspermia model uh, I don't consider that to be one of the more likely scenarios. It is on my third or fourth in terms of it's possible, but not really a lead candidate. And so depending on who you're hearing from, it's either a valid but not too strong theory or complete nonsense, but it kind of depends on which version people are going for. And if I completely misunderstood your question was there, sorry. <laughs> Chromageddon, thank you for your super chat of $10. And Chroma wants to know if a black hole engine can be used as a shield during high-speed interstellar travel, or at least to get one going and follow it, or maybe using one as an Aldrian cylinder. Aldrian cycle? Yes. Okay. Sorry. No My problem. eyes are swelled shut. But you got sunglasses on, too. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, the... Uh, this comes up a lot as people say, can I use a black hole as a shield? Not a classic one. A black hole that has a a with just like this arm, your arm length, right? Like this size. I have to contract them to the on screen. <laughs> so okay, because it's much lighter now. This would be like the mass of Mercury. A one out here would be worth. Uh, <laughs> so all that mass is in there. Very very tiny shield, right? Um, apologies, advance of off one or magnitude on size there. But like the whole sun, if it was turned into a black hole, would only about three kilometers across, and the size of the event horizon that things can't pass through or escape through uh, pass through to get through the other side is linear with mass right? so you are talking about if you go from 3 kilometers across all the way down to just 3 meters across that's a difference of a thousand in the mass that's all that's not even down to the mass of Earth yet you have to get very very massive before you even get something the size of your hand right? you're already up in the bigger than the moon mass just to be the size of your hand uh, not a good shield for anything you're trying to prevent from coming into you. Not a bad place to redirect things to if you can redirect them, but probably not just make them miss you entirely. Um, in terms of using them as a power supply, though, as you're coasting through space, sucking gas in, and you know, shooting it down that to provide that thrust, um, yeah, yeah. That's why we like black holes, potential spaceships drive either for the Hawking radiation for really tiny ones or through that uh, accretion disk where you get that matter energy conversion approach, so. Kaka13 wants to know what your thoughts are on artificial gravity research and if it's doable in the near term. Probably not. Uh, a person who discovered an artificial gravity method, though, would probably be... A, it's, it's like the first person to really get a uh, perpetual motion machine walking. They'd be the next trillionaire or the first trillionaire. Um, and we see a trillionaire in my lifetime, so uh, even without life extension. Um... The, we do have an episode on that. It's the Clark Tech anti-gravity episode. We spend as much time talking about artificial as anti-gravity there. It's a really valuable technology if you can make it work. Um, we see it mostly in science fiction for making sure that people don't float around the deck or have to explain why the ship's spinning. Um, but uh, I don't see many pathways for it. Uh, I know I used to like to play around with it in a lot of the sci-fi settings we develop as something like... Um, you know, uh, instead of photovoltaics, you had photogravitonics or neutrino gravitonics, where something absorbs a photon or a neutron instead of producing light or electron, it produces a graviton. If the graviton is real, which all evidence currently seems to indicate is the case, then there should be some way to produce it, one would think. If you can do that, and some way to produce it non, you know, um, 
non-omnidirectionally, then not only should you be able to produce artificial gravity, but you should have to produce something like a tractor beam. That should be in the realm of science. The pathway to getting there, though, who knows? Could unidirectional wormholes be possible? Asks Sonobello if they only allowed travel to places so far that you wouldn't be able to break causality with them. Sure, that's one of the more popular concepts for that would be. Uh, actually, that's another one we played around with the game setting that I'm not going to mention which one. Um, if you could have a wormhole that shot you out uh, a thousand, you know, light years from here, then you could find the other end there. There's, you know, theoretically no causality issues. That's how you go out the time travel issue, though. Um, I take the mouth of that wormhole and I drag that other mouth back home. Now I actually have that time travel loop issue going on, but it's a closed time-like one, so it's not as bad. Um, see our wormholes episode for more discussion of that, but the one-way traversable wormhole, most of the interest in terms of not going to, to other parts of our universe, but going to different universes. That's where the one-way traversable wormhole is interesting to us. Um, there's no particular reason why in this universe a one-way traversable wormhole would be significant. You just make another one that went from there back. So it's just like a freeway then. You got two of them instead of one that you go up and down. But uh, traversable one universe would be like, I make a black hole and at that black hole's core is a wormhole that goes to another universe. I can never come back through it, but I can go out. Quite a leap of faith to go through one. Yeah, <laughs> really. Uh, three questions left here before the break. We have a, a super chat from James Morris. Thank you for your donation, James. What do you think will end disability first, BCIs and or regenerative medicine, and how do you think they will interact? Um, it would depend a lot on which disability. Um, Nerves, well, okay. The idea behind a BCI ending a disability, and let's let's take a very specific case here. We'll go with a prosthetic hand. We still have a lot of work to get done just to be able to make a prosthetic hand that can really emulate a human hand, that would actually have good temperature sensors, good pressure sensors, you know, that very, very crude thing initially. But in order to get that going, you need to be able to redo those nerve connections, um, which means somewhere in there, you have to either be able to put a pair of jumper cables or alligator clips in there, uh, as it were, to uh, get the connections from the brain, or get the brain to construct new ones, which is also a possibility. You see the BCI episode. Or you have to be able to regrow or grow in the first place. Uh, some people obviously are born without the thing in the first place, so like no arm when you were born. You have to be able to actually put that in there. And either one is going to be the one that starts ending those kind of disabilities, and it's just a question of which one do we get first, more than which one is the one that's going to end it. So. I would bet a combination too, though, because I think if you get uh, a decent amount of like nerve regeneration going on, it probably won't be quite perfect, and you'll still need to have some BCI control in there. So, Isaac Bordeaux says, "What will the science fiction genre look like when humanity is a K two or K three civilization?" It's possible it won't actually be around anymore. I mean, not every genre is, but you might call it eternal. Speculative fiction is, right? But uh, just as an example. Um, in the, I can't remember the Golden Age and Silver Age specifically is, but new wave science fiction from like the late 60s and 70s, uh, which gives some really good science fiction by folks like Rogers Lassie, one of my favorites. They all was almost no real interest in, in hard science in those. It was more of a, here are some challenges that science might give us, and here's the effect it would have on culture. That kind of area should continue perpetually, but we could very easily hit a point where we have maxed out all of our science in a couple of centuries, regardless of whether K1, K2, K0, K3, etc. Um, 
And at that point, you kind of expect the science fiction part of it, and you just have speculative fiction. But even then, you know, you start kind of guessing what's life in another universe like, what's the multiverse like. You still have those folks who are in science fiction traveling to other universes while you're only traveling to solar systems. So that would be the big change. You just want to see planetary science fiction stuff, and they'd still be like, well, what if we find FTL? So I don't really see the sci-fi genre eliminating itself anytime in the next few thousand years at least. <laughs> Last question before the break. Man Disc 2014. Would you book a suite for your 50th anniversary at blank? Insert corporate chain here, blank Lunar Resorts. Uh, only if they had moon bacon. And if you remember that old joke for the show, then, then points for you. That's what all old gags we haven't had around for a while. Um... If it was actually the point that there was a resort that had people going in and out of it, then yeah, I would seriously be thinking about making a trip there, because I'm not one of those people who's really all that anxious to try out space flight personally. I don't ever need to be supposed to do planes to fly somewhere or things like that, but it still would be nice to actually go What about a lunar B&B? A lunar B&B? No air B&B there, because there's no air at the lunar <laughs> I think that would be a neat thing to try, and I'll see all, all 15 animals would be... Um, a few years. Yeah, it'd be 2070, wouldn't it? Um, we'll see. <laughs> right. Well, we're going to go break for a few minutes, and we'll be right back with more of your questions. So we'll be on break for a few minutes, so we can all grab a drink and a snack. And while we're on break, I thought we'd touch on our recent End of Earth episode. As regular viewers know, I write and record the episodes way in advance, typically two three months before the video gets made, about a week or two before it airs. And often when doing the video overlays, more materials come to mind. This results in the occasional extended edition over on Nebula, which are sometimes trial balloons for follow-up episodes too, but for shorter ones we can use the livestream break and in this case we were looking at the various cataclysm scenarios for Earth. First though, I want to give a quick shout out to Guy Haley. His novel, Belisarius Call of the Great Walk, is the first place I heard someone suggest that grey gooing a planet should result in compressed and dead molten layers of them. I'm not sure if he's the first to point that out or hoard it elsewhere, but the novel actually has a lot of hard sci-fi gems in it, especially on concepts of post-human minds, which is a rarity in shared settings and space operas, which 40k certainly is. So kudos to him for that and for many other enjoyable novels. The machines diverging into an ecosystem with predator-prey ideas discussed in that episode though is inspired by Gregory Benford's Galactic Central Saga, which I also highly recommend. And with some spoilers, the nominal bad guys of that series are machine intelligences experimenting on how to survive proton decay. Now I get asked occasionally to do a Civilizations at the End of Time episode on proton decay, it's probably the most requested new installment of that series after one focusing on the Big Rip, and I probably will do both at some point, but there's a reason we haven't done proton decay, and that's because it's strongly debated if it even happens. Proton decay was very central to a lot of grand unified theories over the years, and the basic notion is that while the standard model of particle physics has the proton as stable, never decaying, many theories like supersymmetry or SUSY predicted proton decay and had this idea at its core. Neutrons decay, they take about 12 minutes to do so on average, but electrons and protons have never been observed to decay. However, we thought they might, and had a minimum half-life of something like a trillion 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 years last I checked. I never liked it or the particle zoo of hypothetical particles we had going when I was in college, around the turn of the century, and it's probably a big factor in me not continuing on into nuclear physics in grad school. If you've ever seen the college ring I wear with the atom engraved on the gemstone, my undergrad advisor at Kent State, Mark Manley, was a nuclear physicist, and while I inherited a great love of astrophysics from my mentor, 
I eventually acquired a heavy dislike for the seemingly infinite new cosmological theories and particle zoos that seemed to spring up left and right then, and thus didn't go into nuclear for grad school, even though that had been the plan at the time. The basic notion of particles vis-a-vis the end of the world or universe is that all matter is made out of protons, so if those decay, all normal matter would cease to exist within several half-lives of the proton. If that's 10 to the 34th years, by 10 to the 35th years you would expect only about a thousandth of the prior matter to still exist, and by 10 to the 36th years, 100 half-lives, basically no matter whatsoever to exist, as 2 to the 100 is an absurdly huge number. Which would mean that even civilizations surviving by being digital and post-human and slowly trickling matter into black holes could only make it to this period, which is still a long time, as long to the current age of the Universe as it is to a microsecond, but still long short of the lifetimes of even the smallest naturally occurring black holes, so it would prevent the scenarios we looked at in our black hole farming and Ion Stars episodes. Now mind you, that's the minimum half-life protons might have, and there's no evidence they have a half-life at all, it might be even longer if it does have one, but if it turns out to be real, you have to eventually alter your civilization to run on some sort of meson-based matter, or something running on positron-electron atoms, also called positronium, where an electron and its antiparticle the positron forms something akin to a hydrogen atom. This is possible and might make for a good episode in that series, but it's also something that could be how Earth ends, with all the matter decaying as the protons did, and so I thought it probably deserved an honorable mention in that episode, which again came out this Thursday if you haven't seen it yet. And with all that said, let's get back to our show, and back to your questions. And we're back. Okay, our next question is going to be from Gravitationi Manavar. Hi Arthur, and greetings from Serbia. What's your opinion on Bracewell probes being used in our solar system? I imagine something like the Centennial laying dormant and waiting to start communication with us. Say Centennial or Sentinel? Probably Sentinel. Sentinel. Okay. Um, There was a very classic story by Arthur C. Clarke uh, that uh, featured something called the Sentinel, which is kind of the prelude to the whole 2001 um, setting uh, that we have with Stanley Kubrick later on. But uh, Baseball Probe uh, is similar to Von Neumann Probe, but its purpose is basically go out, find life, and either chat with it, monitor it, go hunt it down, and uh, if it's a berserker, blow it up. It's one of a long category of how would you send a robot out to do these things. And I have to be honest, when we talk about things like that, it does seem like such of a, you know, the early generation of trying to look at interstellar arc ships and things like that, where you're thinking it's going to take 10,000 years to get the nearest solar system because you're using rocket fuel or, or very simple nuclear propulsion, or where you're sending out a really dumb robot that's freakishly intelligent, kind of the Asmovian robot, where it's amazingly sophisticated but stupid. Um, that is not how AI is going to work out. You're going to be sending things that are, are very parallel to human intelligence or very simplistic and are not even vaguely sapient. Um, and we would probably just go ahead and qualify any probe like that as manned. Um, see, Dennis E. Taylor's increasingly classic uh, uh, We Are Legion, We Are Bob series for what that might actually look like because he is, uh, well, he is a von Neumann probe, but also could be, could be a, a baseball probe too. Great book. Thank you, Merv Johnson, for your super chat, and he says, if you had an Alcubierre ship and turned on the main rocket engines while in the warp bubble at faster than light, what would happen? Mm. Yeah, I'd say call Magdalene. 
Miguel Alcubier uh, would probably have the best answer for that. I'm trying to think of what it might actually be. Um, the Alcubier warp drive is basically working on the assumption that we're going to suck space down in front of us while we're expanding space behind us. And then when we pass that, we'll go and expand it some more. Um, it can't violate relativity because it's just changing space in front and behind it. There is no need for a drive on that ship because it's just coasting along that way. But I don't believe there's any particular reason why it having an OSHA uh, would actually be an issue or it generating that. Behind it is a black hole for all practical purposes, though, so um, you might have some interesting effects off its rocket flame. I'm not too clear on how that would happen there, but uh, it really shouldn't make that much of a difference. Noah R. says, what date do you predict for the opening of the first O'Neill scale habitat? Sometime in the 22nd century. Um, it's kind of like the Oprah ring when we talk about it, and... Uh, so I'm thinking I might have a bad answer on that. It could be a warp drive. I think uh, Green Assault on the last answer. I'll have to check that because I think that was right, but I, I'm, it's hard to think that one through on the top of my head. Um, but getting back to the O'Neill Cylinder. O'Neill Cylinders and Orbital Rings are not technologically complicated devices. One is a spinning can, and the other is a hose that's just full of magnetic bits instead of, you know, particles. Um, you build them when you get to a certain scale where you need them, not because you can. Um, when you have thousands and thousands of people living and walking in space every day, then you might start considering building a habitat that size. But then why? Right? What's keeping them all in that one location? Why are they at that one as opposed to a bunch of other smaller ones? So realistically, I tend to think you're going to have to get to that point where you got a million people actively employed up in space traveling back and forth every day if we start talking about doing, you know, tens of thousands of people launching space every day, that's when you start thinking of being immediate an orbital ring. Pretty much the same place for Neosondos too, I think. When you start getting to that point that the amount of space industry is on par with a smaller country, that's probably where you start actually start seeing people considering building those things for living in, working in, vacation in. You may have already started to answer Brick Muppet's question with that though. Um, Thank you, Brick Muppet, for your super chat of $5. And he says, do you see any real advantages to settling Mars or Castillo as opposed to O'Neill cylinders and such? What was the second one? Callisto, I'm sorry. Callisto? Okay. Um, Callisto is one of the more interesting moons of Jupiter that gets mentioned less. So it's the focus on Ganymede, which is the biggest, or Europa, because it definitely has that subsurface ocean. Callisto probably has that same subsurface ocean, just not as impressive as Europa's. Um... I would actually tend to think that Callisto would be the first one you colonize in the, in the Jovian system, and probably that would be a place you would colonize. Mars, uh, you know, we were talking about the case for space and the Olio case for Mars book, Olio by Robert Zubin, uh, and you can go watch all Mars versus Moon episode for some of the ups and downs of it, but Mars is not a place that you colonize because you want to have a lot of new homes for people. It is not the new American frontier or something like that. Uh, it is one of many places you could potentially colonize. I do not think that it's going to turn out to be one of those places where you have millions and millions of people living until you already have millions and millions of people living in Earth orbit and on the moon and in the asteroid belt, too. I'm having trouble reading some of these ones with the bee sting. But mm -hmm. uh, the Canadian says, Do you think it's worth using the waste from fusion to generate more power than the fusion itself? Um, 
Oh, okay. When I when I take two hydrogen atoms, just regular plain vanilla hydrogen atoms, um, and I ram them together, one proton to another proton, I make deuterium. I can then fuse that deuterium again, and we often say deuterium is a lot easier to fuse to get me some tritium, helium, helium-3, whichever. And I can fuse those, too. I can potentially fuse those into carbon. Um, and then to fuse carbon into nitrogen, oxygen, you know, silicon, or fluorine, any of other things, each of these steps produces more power. The question then becomes, would you take your hydrogen and just keep fusing over and over and over again, so you already got it pressure, into you basically sending off a small supernova vent inside it, uh, in terms of what's going on, where you can avoid stuff basically into ion. Um, and that's the ideal. Uh, although I suspect in most cases we got things that well controlled, you'd probably just dump it down a black hole's accretion disk, uh, you know, sorry, its neck to create a accretion disk instead. But um, yeah, that would be ideal. Probably a long way off though, because uh, it just requires so much more control when we haven't even got to the point we can do deuterium the easiest of these yet. Quirden. Ten says, Isaac, do you think that the brain would have an eventual natural death if we could rule out physical deterioration through the use of spare bodies? And how do you think the brain would respond? Yes. Um, every book has its epilogue. Uh, you're going to die. <laughs> it's, that is going to happen. Uh, but it may not happen in the next century. It may be a million years from now or a billion years from now. But whatever you start to find you first have to say what am I? Not what's a human necessarily, though that's a good question. What am I and where's the natural turning point for me? Because um, let's say I just keep adding to your brain. Let's say we do one of the pathways to biology, which is your brain just keeps growing bigger and bigger biologically. You go live in a microgravity environment and your thoughts start taking a century apiece to happen, although they are great and profound. Or we make you post-digital things like that. Um, sorry, post-human in digital format. There is a certain point at which your personality has so altered that it can't even be sad to be you anymore. Or maybe you've merged into something else. There's always going to be certain endpoints. You start defining where is the endpoint for you. Years back, we did an episode called Digital Death that started looking at what the realistic half-life might be, so to speak, for a human that was using those methods of preservation. And I'd refer you to that because we discussed more of the options there. Albert Jackinson says, Good afternoon, Isaac. You've covered artificial black holes on this channel before. What artificial versions of other astronomical objects could be made, and what applications would they have, if any? Star Wars and planets would be the next two I tend to think of. Um, I mean, obviously, we've talked a lot about making artificial planets, uh, be that uh, shell wards or, or just natural coin ones that we've made manually. Um, but uh, and Star Wars, obviously fusion would be an example of that too. Though, as I wanted to remind folks, with fusion, we don't have a problem recreating the conditions inside the sun. That would be the easy part. Problem is, if I take a few hundred tons of solar matter uh, at the core that's actually doing the fusion, I barely have enough energy to run a, a, a local neighborhood on. It's you know, it's not a lot of energy. It's very slow fusion. We need to go higher up to faster higher pressure um, types of reactions to really do that. So it's arguable for fusion drive really is a, a artificial sun. Um, and I think it was like a watt per ton of matter in a red dwarf or something like that or less. See one of our fusion episodes with discussion of that. Um, other artificial phenomena, possibly supernovas, maybe something you might actually generate though more controlled. Um, I don't know. 
there was potential value to things like magnetars or gamma ray boss. Those might actually be interesting means of propulsion at some point, but that's the only things I could think of off the top of my head. The Big Bang would be a, a phenomenon we'd like to be able to replicate. <laughs> you know. JP Ventura, thank you for your super chat. And he says, if life was to be found on any solar planet, would it be ethical to terraform it? Are we accidentally contaminating Mars with Earth life with drones? Um, you know, the big problem with an ethics question is you actually have to start off by asking what is the basis and source of my ethics. Um, if I am saying that this planet we found has, say, Europa, let's say we crack Europa open and we find inside there is something like an amoeba, and we'll say, debating whether or not it actually is running on DNA or not, it might be some distant relative of ours or completely different origin for it, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd say, well, we have to wait to eat all the science done. So obviously we're not going to get rid of that life. we got a lot of science to do. Um, except that's not really a good moral answer to that question because all you really said is it's getting a stay of execution because we want to learn. We have a selfish motivation for doing it. On the other hand, what we are talking about there is a simple amoeba. I don't care about it anymore. I care about the ones in my yoga culture. So I don't know where the lines are on that, but you have to start by figuring out why is this life in some way precious and that's where you can start drawing those conclusions uh at the moment though you can say if we find these things we won't screw with them too much because the scientific value is so enormous so there's just a utilitarian moral basis for keeping it around initially do black holes usually rotate clockwise or counterclockwise um not a not a right answer not a right question um Everything in the solar system rotates clockwise uh, around the sun and the sun as well, with a couple of very minor exceptions because the net angular momentum of the solar system happens to be going in that direction. The galaxy has a net angular momentum too. However, clockwise and counterclockwise are based on whether you're up or down. Uh, particle physics, we have spin types, but those aren't really real analogies for this universe. So whether you're clockwise or counterclockwise, it's just which angle you're looking at, up or down. And so, from some people's perspective, it would seem to be going clockwise. Um, but it just depends where you're at, what the net angular momentum is, because in general, whatever the net angular momentum in a region is, that is what most things are going to spin as, and with time, what everything would spin as, as it evens out. C.R. Smith says, what is the future of terror weapons? If I remember correctly, the xenomorph was a biological weapon made by the Prometheans, is that at all possible? And what else can you think up? Uh, Alien was a great movie. Aliens was also a great movie. Um, Predator was an awesome movie. Um, I wish they hadn't mixed those series together. Um, I really, it's like when they do Robocop vs. the Terminator in a lot of comic books. It's like, don't, don't mix those. Um, they did do a decent job. I, th I thought the Prometheus movie was actually fairly decent, but... Um, after that, yeah, they were interested in looking at this complex alien life form where they were willing to sacrifice the crew to bring it home to spoil us for the plot. It is not a good weapon. It forces they blow them way left and right in the aliens movie. Um, the the space marines they are just mortaring them left and right. Um, they do very well against most of the unarmored people uh, and unweaponized people. Um, they are terrifying predators, but. Uh, they're not really any better of a weapon than a lion or a shark is. Would you like to weaponize those? No, not really, because a tank is better. You know? <laughs> uh, so I wouldn't expect that to be the kind of biological life form people would use. I really don't know if I'd ever say that... Because you get this blowing line between self-replicating machinery and biology at higher levels of science that either one obviously has its value as a weapon, but 
I tend not to think of Grey Goo or self-replicator as biological or artificial as very good weapons. They're more like very good means of deploying systems of weaponry, you know, by building them. Jamal Anusa says, Hi, Arthur. Greetings from Ghana. Mm -hmm. My question is, with private entities leading the way, do you think corporations are likely going to take over the role of government when it comes to space colonies? Um, just, you know, we recently did a collaboration with What If Alt History, and that seems like a question more in his line. Um, you know, you could look at like, the history of something like the East India Company, um, uh, or any number of companies that were operating in the, what we call the colonial regions there in Africa, South America, Jakarta, Indonesia. Um, obviously, you have a large organization whose main goal is profit, they cannot really serve in a governmental role, that's got to shift over. Um, but uh, kind of same for governments, you have a priority that your organization exists for. As I remind people, we started using the word corporation to mean for-profit companies only. Corporation is the term that says basically that we're going to take a group and corporate, make it a real thing, right, uh, for a purpose. The village you live in is a corporation. It's incorporated if you live in a village. The city is incorporated. Uh, many of the nonprofit groups you'd be familiar with, like the Red Cross, these are corporations. You corporate with a purpose in mind. And so if your goal is to be a colony maker, um, then you probably are not cooperating specifically for profit motive explicitly or as your chief priority. Um, assume whatever the goal of a given group is, that that is going to be what they make their main push for. And if your main push is colonization, that's what it's going to be for. Great question, Jamal. Next, we have Sahan Yassar, and he wants to know what would be the most memorable moment of this century of space exploration if asteroid mining started? The most memorable moment of space colonization in this century if asteroid mining started? Yeah, this century. Um, well, I, I can give you a couple options. Uh, one would be they dragged the asteroid back and it fell out of control and landed on the planet. That would be memorable. Oh, that um, would be bad. <laughs> but memorable. Two would be that that time where they have the, the pod land from the first gold mine thing and the big, you know, song and dance where they got the cameras in there, open it up and behold, vast supplies of gold balls from space. Um, and I could definitely see a, a, an Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos type personality making it quite the big show out of that uh, unveiling, or Tony Starkish, I should say. Uh, but picture Tony Stark doing that instead. You can imagine he'd make quite a show out of it. Um, I would say that would probably be the two big memorable moments that would probably come out of something like that that offer them up is just really sticking out. JP Ventura, thank you for your super chat. He wants to know if you have watched Terraforming Venus episodes on the um, Kursky Kurskazat. Yep, channel. And he says it's scary that it reminds Earth four and a half billion years ago with an artificial moon creation. Uh, I haven't had occasion to watch that episode yet. I'm told that it basically takes the Borch model we looked at in uh, Winter on Venus and, and discusses it briefly. So um, I have not had occasion to see that episode yet. Chris K. says, is there any incentive to visit any other stars close to ours other than the Centauri system? I'm sorry, one more time? Is there any incentive to visit any other stars close to ours other than the Centauri system? What's the advantage of going to Alpha Centauri? 
Uh, it's because you got the same one for Tau Seti or for Benoit Stahl or Epsilon Iwadani or Delta Pavonis. All of these solar systems nearby us uh, offer potential vast amounts of new worlds and resources and new homes. Um, that's the incentive. It's as true to them as the other ones, but that's probably the one. If you mean which one should we visit first, uh, I would say Alpha Centauri, uh, probably Proxima specifically, but uh, does you know it just makes sense it's the shortest trip. And there's a lot of resources probably there. There's bound to be planets there. Bernadette Swick says, What is the biggest challenge facing airship to orbit orbit projects? Um I think the thing the biggest thing, and we talked about this in the Sky Platforms episode, people kinda of get the idea that we can lift up a, a, a rocket into the air and then launch it on the back of a balloon. That's an option, and it would save you fuel, but it, there's so much coordination to doing that. And there are some amazing potential ways to do that. Again, we looked at some in sky platforms that were pretty impressive. We had to lift up very large objects into the upper, upper, upper atmosphere. Fundamentally, though, if you want to be in orbit, you have to actually speed up, and because otherwise you're just hanging the air. And like an orbital ring permits you to do that because you can run around on that track with you know a supply of energy right there to fuel you and no air slowing you down uh mass driver does that same trick and um but when you get to space towers when you get to uh airships you have to actually have some way to get that ship moving at orbital speed otherwise you're just floating you know and that's not really what you want to be doing there david b says hey uh Hey, Isaac, did you watch The Tomorrow War yet? And if so, how well do you think the Invader Monster Predators were made? I watched the first minute of it. Uh, it kept getting uh, poked at me with uh, Amazon Prime, uh, but uh, we ended up watching Hell's Kitchen instead. Uh, <laughs> and I was and actually, as you could see on Facebook, yeah. the Hell's Kitchen episode has resulted in some marvelous creations. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, I still don't really watch a lot of TV, neither does Sarah, uh, but we've been trying to do some classic sci-fi. We watched the First episode of Battlestar Galactica yesterday, um, the original Battlestar Galactica, uh, the one green is awesome, um, and uh, it was nice to kind of catch up on that, but then we were watching Columbo this early afternoon. Um, lots of TV shows in the past I want to catch up on before I start talking about some new ones, I suppose. Um, Rexy the Hound says, are you concerned about population collapse with falling birth rates across the globe projected to get worse and worse this century? Because the people projecting these things keep proclaiming it does not actually make it even vaguely right. Um, people who do population projections um, just keep getting them wrong. I mean, they always get them wrong. You can project it for a decade out because you know what the behavior mostly is. You're not going to be off that much because it's easy to guess. I mean, you can't be up by more than 1%. Um, when I was a little kid, they said that by the year 2020, or whatever it was, it changed a lot. We'd have 16 billion people, and we'd all be cannibalizing each other. Uh, a, like a decade ago, they said we're going to have the population drop off. It was 6 billion at the turn of the century. We had 8 billion in a year or two. Um, and say, well, the population sure has started declining. Last century, it doubled twice in 100 years. In the last 50 years, it's doubled exactly once in 50 years. Populations grow as long as they can comfortably do so. That is how that works. The fact that some countries are having their population growth rates decline a little bit probably is attributable to many other factors. Um, most of the wards are having a population increase. And I don't see any reason why that would stop being the case as long as they have the resources to do that. 
I really do not like a lot of the groups that are projecting the population growth or decline. They might be right, but not from good, solid, proper analysis. I think that they cherry pick a lot of, of a very great deal. The population is continuing to rise, and I will believe that it's going to stop growing as soon as we have 10 years in a row where the population growth rate is less than 0.1%. Uh, uh, super chat from El Fernandez, and he says, how's it going? Thank you for your super chat. And the last question will be from Mr. Gunsnatter. He says, hello from Scotland, Arthur. Of all the myriad fusion power programs, which approach do you think will be successful? Well, I mean, kind of all of them are semi-successful and will be successful in certain other details. But the Takamak is is it's the the classic. It's my early favorite. There's a lot of ones I like. The Polywell is beautiful. Um, obviously, we always like laser ignition, but the Takamak is 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 always got my money on it as the best option. Figuratively, though, because I'm not going to invest in fusion resource. That's what governments do right now. Uh, hey, hey, I just found one more question. If you've got sure, yeah. Um, Fran Botan says, if the rotor of an orbitable ring breaks up at a single point, will it crash into the Earth or fly away into space? Um, a space elevator, if you cut it, will have it uh, fly away above the cut and the rest will fall back down. That's how a space elevator works. An orbital ring, if you break it, is going to start falling through the atmosphere, uh, where the terminal velocity is usually about 100 miles an hour, depending on your architectural. Um, it, when it crashes, it's not going to leave a crater the way an asteroid would. It will leave a hole directly underneath it, possibly a little bit wider than it is. So if you go build an orbital ring that's like a kilometer across, yeah, when that comes down, it's going to shake the Earth, right? But uh, if you have one that's only you know, 10 meters across, then anyone who's actually living directly underneath it or within maybe 100 meters is in danger, potentially. Um, big thing, though, is we have ways of slowing objects down. You put bolts in it that cause the sections to separate, you know, explosive boom, and then you probably have, you know, some uh, parachutes deployed on it. I think we discussed that in the Oprah Rings episode, and it could just slow down more, but it's going to fall down on your house the same way an electrical wire would in terms of being some damage, but might not even kill the people inside that house. It just depends how big the orbital ring is. They're not asteroids. They're coming in at terminal velocity, not an asteroid velocity. Any others, or are we done for the... That was oh, the... Okay. Last question for the day. <laughs> Last question for the day. It's after 5 o'clock. It is after 5 o'clock, Eastern Time. My eyes are swelling shut. I can't read any more yeah. questions. I'm going to get you some more antihistamines. <laughs> Going to get out of the suit jacket, and we are going to see you all on Thursday. Thank you so much for joining us, and have a great week. Uh... So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and again, if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below, and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also, you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website, IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you Thursday.